Welcome back to uh, Handsome with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. After uh, an absence, the size of the universe or the ever decreasing universe itself, I am back here with my sparring partner, Jason Miller. Say hello, Jason. Joe, I hope you are ready for what I'm going to bring over the next two hours, and my prediction is pain. Bring it, mate. Bring it. No, I'll tell you what, right? I think you and I are on the same page about this story. I think we both love this. We are not, and I've come here with receipts, and I'm now going to settle a score with you that is probably about 17 <laughs> years old. <laughs> Go on. So you and I both used to be regular posters on Stacy Smith question marks the ratings guide. Mm-hmm. And we didn't interact much 15 years ago when we were both in our posting heyday. But if you go back to the ratings guide, you and I both reviewed Legopolis, spoiler alert for uh, today's recording, in sequence. So my review was posted on New Year's Eve 2003, and it is a screen and a half of absolute gushing, dare I say, almost orgasmic praise for Legopolis. And then the very next review is by one embryonically young Joe Ford posted about eight months later. I was young, all right. And he says, he he, as in you, says, there seems to be a theory in Doctor Who fandom that Legopolis is one of the best stories to have ever been transmitted and that it is a fitting and climactic end to the ultimate Doctor's reign. Well, I say... Uh, expletive deleted to that and more besides. Logopolis is nowhere near the best Doctor Who story. It certainly isn't the best Tom Baker story, and it's not even the best of season 18. It's a story that aspires to greatness but never reaches it, that teases with a coherent storyline but instead delights in frustrating the random viewer. It is the weakest Christopher H. Bidmead story by a square mile and reveals that the poor guy is running out of steam after practically rewriting every single story for the season or so he claims. So this is the guy that I am here to spar with today, and we're going to go 15 rounds, right? No. Unfortunately. If that's what you're expecting, you're going to be highly disappointed. I I came here bearing a 16-year-old, 17-year-old grudge over this review, and I came here to bring the pain. What happened? I was going to ask you how long you've been sitting on this for. 16 years, man! That's a long time to hold a bloody grudge. Um... Unfortunately, time and age has matured me. Now, I don't know if you listened to my recent Nine One Be Praised episode about Legopolis, but I've found an intense amount of love for this story over the last 16 years, and I will be coming to celebrate its successes with you. But I will say I don't think this is the strongest story of season 18. That's the one part of that that terrible review that i wrote all those years back that's the one part i would still say i i think warriors gate is the strongest story of this season um for a lot of reasons but apart from that um i rather like this now so i i'm I'm terribly sorry about that actually i did listen to your naiman be praised episode and after i heard your um ruminations on one john fraser Uh, You received a mystery present in the mail, and now the truth can be revealed that I am the source of that mystery present. I mean, I knew that, right? (laughs) Um, Excuse me. You're the first straight man that sent me pornographic books in the post, honestly. 
By all accounts, that's a pretty racy book. I I didn't know how prolific John Fraser was because I'm a little bit behind on my Dirk Bogard 1950s uh, British um, epic movies. So I was watching Legopolis uh, this past summer, this past August, as part of my uh, Twitter pilgrimage. And anytime I watch the story, I, of course, have the DVD info text on. So now I'm watching Legopolis for the first time on the season 18 Blu-ray, which has the all-new written info text. And it talked about Fraser's career and his autobiography. So I immediately run over to Amazon. Not only is the book still in print and in stock on Amazon UK, but it's still in print and in stock on Amazon US. So I ordered myself a copy, and then I played your hamster, and I ordered you a copy. And I have read the book, and it is – it will curl your hair. It will pop your eyebrows. This is a shocking, shockingly racy book. It's amazing, but it's it really shockingly, is. scandalously racy. Is it more scandalous than the JNT book? Less scandalous than the JNT book because John Fraser himself does not commit any criminal behavior, and there's no real Gary Downey-type villain lurking through the book. Okay. But it is it is a joyful – exploration of what it was like to be closeted in Hollywood and in London cinema in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And he names names and he gives receipts and he just tells very, very funny stories. Now, this is a family podcast, Joe. I know you don't you don't want me telling these stories on your show, so I'll spare you the details, but it is an amazing, amazing book. Censor yourself on this podcast, okay? This is definitely PG-13 and we do not touch upon these things. However, um, I mean, I have to apologise because I haven't read the book yet. Uh, life has rather got in the way in the last six months. Um, I haven't read any books in the last six months. Actually, that's a shocking um, admission. But I will get to that because, well, racy, saucy, you know, I love a bit of that. So <laughs> I will get to that. However, I'm hoping you'll, you'll add a few details when John Fraser joins the story because obviously you have. Um, well, listen, I am queued up and ready to go if you are. I am queued up and ready to go. Right. Well, I can't believe you read out that review, you bastard. <laughs> I bring my receipts, Joe. Oh, you wait, next time I come, next time we get together, I'm going to bring one of yours, all right? Honest to God. Please, I mean, I, I have not been on this uh, show in nine months, and I just was sitting on this and sitting on this like a like entropy, ready to unleash upon the universe. Oh, but dumb. Well, oh no, but first of all, we've got to be introduced to Tegan, you wanker, haven't we? Oh no. Okay. All right. So, count us in. I'll count us down in uh, part four, part three, part two, part one. Go. Mm. Oh, well, that's quite loud. Um, I've got a question for you straight off the bat. It's not a Joe Ford podcast. It doesn't begin until Joe asks, I have a question for you. I, I, so, let's go. Let's do it. And I would just like to point out, when I went on track one last week, Jason used that exact tone and threw on at me. Um, I'm a naughty boy, aren't I? Is this the most structured or the most successfully structured season of Classic Who? That's a really good question. And I think you and I both know the answer already. Uh, It's the first season of Doctor Who that is actually structured like a season with a proper beginning, middle, and end. Unless you count series one back in 1963, 64. But here, every story leads into the next. Uh, 
there's a big revelation here that ties back to full circle no, later on in the story. So Bidmead was certainly uh, knew exactly what he was doing, and it's almost modern. It's almost 21st century in its in its style. Do you know what's marvelous is even though um, he had some structure this to this year, there was still unpredictable elements thrown in because the master was never supposed to be in Keeper of Trakan, was he? And Bidmead was like, right, not only am I going to put him in the Keeper of Trakan, he's going to be the main villain at the end of the season as well. And I think one of the reasons season 18 works so well is this is where Peter Grimwade joins the series and directs his first two stories. And I have a question for you. On the all-time great Doctor Who directors, and we just saw the very famous scene where the police officer is pulled into the TARDIS, where do you slide Grimwade in Doctor Who's great directors? I mean, I've never slid into Peter Grimwade in my life, thank you very much. But where I would slide... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I would... Uh, um, he's... Oh, man, he's up there. So I would say probably, like, the top three directors of Classic Who uh i'd probably put douglas canfield at the top graham harper second and peter brimway third so that's how high he is for me interesting um i my list is probably pretty similar i mean having just finished the classic series pilgrimage i think andrew morgan is worthy of a spot somewhere in the top 10 if not the top five but looking at the stuff that grimway did i have just always wowed by his directorial flourishes so, you know, I haven't been on Hamster in a while. And when I was doing all my episodes early on, we used to talk about these shows scene by scene. And I think the podcast has evolved. So I think rather than doing my usual scene by scene discussion, I think it would help to talk about uh, this story person by person. So we're talking about Grimwade now, and then we can discuss some other people associated with the show as they pop up on screen. But what about Grimwade uh, works for you? What makes you rank him so highly? Well, what did he do? He did uh, Full Circle, Legopolis, uh, Kinder, and Earthshock. And those are four very disparate stories. Tonally, they are completely different stories. And he aces every single one of them in Full Circle. Um, it's probably one of the most robust productions Doctor Who has ever put out. I watched Full Circle this week. And I thought it looked incredible. Like he has an absolute ha a confident handle on a story on another planet, which not a lot of directors of Doctor Who do. Um, with this, he absolutely gets the tone right, that funereal tone that's needed in this story to see Tom Baker out. And I feel every single scene in this is, apart from maybe the scenes now between uh, Vanessa and Tegan, um, uh, kind of lean into that mood. Uh, with Kinder... He's got the like a very cerebral, very surreal story that he's telling. And he just wows with some completely out there video effects and set pieces. Um, and with Earthshock, he's having to tell like an action adventure story. And he does it like no other director in Doctor Who. I think in the last episode of Earthshock, it's something like 150 separate scenes in a 25 minute story so it is absolutely got the pace that it needs i, I just think he he was a, a shockingly competent director who would read the script and he understood what he had to do what his part was in bringing it to life there we go i think bravo and i'm going to agree to all of that 
And you talked about the editing that he did with Earthshock with 150 shots in a 25-minute episode, but the cliffhanger to part three of Kinda, you know, I just came back from L.I. Who, the annual Long Island Doctor Who convention, and every year I run a panel called Cliffhangers! Exclamation point. Okay. And in about 45 to 50 minutes, my co-panelist and I will discuss, you know, 20 or 25 cliffhangers. And I just realized that I should have run the Kinda Part 3 cliffhanger. I've run the Logopolis Part 3 cliffhanger, so we'll, we'll see that fairly soon, um, many years. But the Kinda Part 3, the, the editing and the way that he synchronizes the video to the countdown clocks yeah. and the, the mounting tension and the superimposed video effects, we don't give him enough credit for the editing that he did. Because editing now is easy. It's all you know digital. The editing that you would have had to do, you know, almost with an X-Acto knife and uh, cellophane tape in 1981, 1982, it would have been a backbreaking effort to assemble some of the cuts that he did. And yet, he, he did it. And, you know, we take it for granted now because it's such a modern look. But for its time, that sort of editing was manic and frantic. Then I, I want to tell a funny anecdote because we just saw Tegan and Auntie Vanessa's house. I'm sure you've seen on the, I think it was on the Meglos uh, DVD, uh, the original. Do you know whose house that was that they were using as Tegan and Auntie Vanessa's house? Oh, it's Andrew McCulloch and the other fella's house, isn't it? It's the house they were living in as they were writing Meglos. By and as they were Cohen, writing this, wasn't it? The, 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 yeah. the, the location manager came round and it was their house. And they thought the location manager would come around from the BBC to collect their long overdue scripts. But no, they were just trying to use the house <laughs> for, for the Logopolis exteriors. That is a great story. I think, like, very quickly, kind of summing up on um, Peter Grimway, I just feel like structurally, yeah, kind of emotionally, he just, and, and sort of creatively, he gave everything he had. Like, by all accounts, he was a very manic director who went round with his fingers, like, like, like as a square, like, checking out camera angles, like, between his fingers all the time, driving the actors bloody bonkers. But who cares? Like, who cares about the actors when the results is as good as this? If you listen to any Janet and Peter audio commentary, they're always making fun of him for going around uh, and, and with, with the hands in the square. And I think Matthew Waterhouse, in his audio autobiography, Blue Box Boy, he was a little dismissive of Grimwade as well, if memory serves me right. Apologize if I'm mischaracterizing that. I mean, I but, think it's, it's kind of stated that Grimwade was a bit of a bully. Like, he was a bit toxic on the set, you know? Um, a oh. bit... A bit um, good grief. What's the guy who directed The Shining called? Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. Mad, you know, like, driving everybody mad, trying to get this thing perfect. But he's one of the best directors we ever had. Like, I don't know, maybe the payoff's worth it. Well, Kubrick was kind of abusive. If you listen to the behind-the-scenes stories on The Shining, when he was making Shelley Duvall do 62 takes of a single scene, I think it literally gave her a nervous breakdown. Grimwade is working in a studio where, you know, the clock turns off at 10 o'clock, whether you're ready or not. And we have, uh, thanks to the Blu-rays, we have a lot of his studio footage. We can actually see him direct. He was down on the floor. He was uh, lining up the shots personally, 
rather than just lurking in the gallery like a ghost. Do you see the I, tension between him and Tom Baker? Because Tom Baker's obviously a wee bit toxic himself at this point. He's leaving right. a running show, and he's pissed, basically. And in, in, in the regeneration sequence where he's asked to beckon with a hand, he's just going, well, I don't want to beckon. Tell him I'm not going to beckon. You know, like, Tom Baker's pissed. Peter Grimway's an angry bloke directing it. I mean, poor Matthew Waterhouse. He must have been ducking under that console every five minutes. <laughs> Huge egos about the place. Well, this is only a year after Tom Baker got Alan Bromley fired from the middle of uh, Nightmare of Eden. You know, let's not just think that it's Grimwade is the one rotten egg that caused Tom Baker to snap. Uh, Mid forties Tom Baker in the late seventies was going to snap at the nicest director in the world. Yeah, it's true. But Tom Baker in this story takes his character to whole new depths, and I want to reserve talking about that until some of the later episodes, but. This is one of my favorite Tom Baker performances out of his entire seven-year run, even though it's his last story, even though he's on the way out the door. And he's got, you know, a male companion for the first time since uh, Harry Sullivan. It's just him and Adric and the TARDIS. I think Tom Baker is amazing. And no matter how angry he may have been during filming, that doesn't show up in his performance. Whereas there are other stories where he's clearly phoning it in and clearly going into Operation Shutdown. But in this story, if he was holding a grudge on Grimwade, it is not visible or it's not audible. I'm going to both the final cut. and disagree with you. I agree with you that this is one of his best performances. He absolutely saved the best for last. And I think it's because JNT and Peter Grimwade and Christopher H. Bidmead were all strong characters and they pretty much forced him in his last season. You will do what's on the page. Bidmead talks about coming down on the set and saying, stop, you know, ad-libbing say the script as it is we've written this script say it as it is like they were strong enough to stand up to me he didn't like it but that's what he had to do i defy you to find a story where tom baker is phoning it in i think that is a myth that people blow out of the water and if you're going to mention some of those late william stories i can rebut any argument that you have in those stories that's actually not where i was going i am a i'm not a fan of the early Williams that was when Baker started to get out of control and Williams didn't really have you know he's a young guy he didn't really have the presence this the, the biggest example that I can remember and if you go through my pilgrimage tweets I, I pointed out as it goes there are parts of planet of evil where he is literally you know asleep on the set or just upstaging everyone else in the background of the scene uh, by clearly being not dialed in and clearly not wanting to be there and there's other examples scattered throughout. It's not just, you know, the end of the Graham Williams era. It's not just Nightmare of Eden. But if he didn't like a script, it, it is often visible in his performance. But by all rights, when here he's at his angriest and he's ready to go, he could have tanked this story. And he doesn't. And he's mesmerizing. I mean, yes, he was giving great performances throughout. It's hard to top his intensity in Pyramids of Mars or the comedy in Robot or his rapport with Julian Glover in City of Death. But going back to Grimway for a moment, think about the guest cast that, that Tom Baker is given in this story. I mean, you have Delore Whiteman, who is hilarious. She is so good. You almost wish that she was not confined to episode one. Jason, it, your father's hard, farm is hardly the outback, my dear, and neither is this. Can you imagine a season with Tom Baker and Artie Vanessa? It would have been the greatest season of Doctor Who. You would have had people cosplaying as Auntie Vanessa at cons. 
the, you would have had the two of them doing a whole, you know, 15 big finish box sets. It, it would have been glorious. It, it would have, you, you, it's hard to imagine a, a better twosome than those two and the TARDIS together for years and years. Will you indulge me just for one second? Because can you imagine, right? Imagine like season 15 was Tom Baker and Amelia Ducar. Season 16 was Tom Baker and Amelia Rumford. And season 18 was Tom Baker and Artie Vanessa. I mean, wouldn't they just be the best seasons ever? Can you imagine some of those season 19 stories, but with Tom and, and Delore Whiteman uh, rather than uh, Peter Davison and Matthew Waterhouse? Imagine the two of them in Time Flight. I mean, imagine the two of them in Fort of Doomsday. God. They, they'd land that uh, Concord in prehistoric Earth, and they'd both be there going, my God, how many whiskeys did we have last night? You know? <laughs> now, Joe, I have a question for you. Ooh. So I was listening to your hamster commentary on Twin Dilemma uh, some time ago. That was brilliant. And you had made the point that Kevin McNally would have been a great male companion in season 22 because there's one male pseudo companion in every season 22 story mm-hmm. and they could have just put Kevin McNally in that spot because he and Colin Baker get on like a house on fire in Twin Dilemma and Kevin McNally is easily one of the best things about that story now we are recording this two or three days after Village of the Angels Flux Chapter 4 and that is Kevin McNally's long-awaited return uh, to Doctor Who. Now, Delore Whiteman, of course, never gets to come back, but what did you think of Kevin McNally, uh, this last week's episode, coming back in a much more sensible costume than he wore the last time? I thought he was incredible. I thought his character was incredible. The, the bit where he was like, you know, everyone else facing an angel was shit in their pants. He just goes, you are observed. Like, he was terrific. Man, oh man. Chip off, I mean, I love Dan, but chip off, Dan. Let's have Professor Eustace, what's his name? Agnostics, what's his name? Uh, Eustace Jericho, Eustatius Jericho. Eustace Jericho, oh my God, he was terrific. And how nice that he actually got to appear in, um, you know, like a classic rather than a dud. We, it hasn't aired yet, but we recorded uh, The Trap 1 uh, last night for Chapter 4. And I think it was Adam who made the point. This is the best Doctor Who story featuring Kevin McNally. And I defended you and I said, Joe Ford is going to have some very strongly worded opinions about that because Twin Dilemma is to Joe what Pyramids of Mars is for me. So when that episode comes out, there will be a a nice little love letter to Joe Ford and the Twin Dilemma embedded in that recording. To address that. I do like the Twin Dilemma, but it's not like a classic. <laughs> like, there are some issues there. <laughs> there are some issues there. I've got a question for you then, while we're batting questions back and forth, like a tennis match. What do you think about a TARDIS in a TARDIS in a TARDIS in a TARDIS? See, you're cheating a little bit because you're looking at me on Zoom and I have my cat Smudge on my lap uh, walking around in circles. But what is the Zoom background behind me, Joe? What, am, what, are, you, what are you looking at when you see me? You have a beautiful picture of the TARDIS inside the TARDIS console with the telephone hanging on its wire. Which is literally what you we've just been watching with uh, Tom and Matthew doing their uh, TARDIS prop clowning. It is an iconic image, and it works so well, especially as we get into the TARDIS within the TARDIS. The TARDIS prop is so pleasing on the eye, particularly the shade of blue they were using uh, this season. And it looks so 
both natural and out of place at the same time. And every time they, they go into the TARDIS within the TARDIS, how the lighting goes down more and more, as if they're kind of going deeper. It gets darker and it gets, especially in the novelization where it gets colder and colder and Andrew can literally see their breath. Oh, that would have been great if they could have put some frost on the TARDIS. Remember in Amy's Choice when they had the ice TARDIS, if it had got like more like that as it had gone along? Uh, my confession for you is that I've only seen Amy's Choice once on the day that it aired. And if I had to write a list of everything that I remember from Amy's Choice, I probably can only recall about 45 seconds of it. Oh. Well, we'll go into that another time. Well, I am about to embark upon my new series, Pilgrimage. I'm doing a little Wilderness Years detour right now. And I'll be watching the new series straight through. I'll be watching all the stuff that I haven't seen in many cases in, you know, 10 or 15 years. But trying to drag us bodily back into Legopolis, uh, we've talked a bit about uh, Delore Whiteman. We've talked a lot about Peter Grimwade. Let's talk about the atmosphere because it's not just a director doing this thing in isolation. I mean, the, the crane shot looking down on the orange-colored TARDIS console room as uh, Tom and Matthew were walking through is great. That's a great crane shot. Where do you think Patty Kingsland fits as the great incidental music composers on Doctor Who? High, very high. And I think this is one of the best scores. Okay, so I've got the Doctor Who 50th album, right? And the, the first track I always play on that is it the It's the End. So the last sequence where he's up on the tower and he's struggling and the whole thing right the way through to the regeneration. Um, yeah, I, I mean, people criticise the Radiophonic Workshop for sounding, you know, very Tetris, very sort of early Super Mario Brothers. Um, I love that this sense of music, but I do think it was time for a change here. And I think certainly in season 18 and 19, uh, Paddy Kingsland and Peter Howe are doing striking things with the music. I love Dudley Simpson and so many Dudley Simpson themes are endlessly, you know, humble or singable. Uh, Patty's score is so gorgeous, and every score he did was a little bit different. I mean, you always know when it when it's him, but his hard rock score fits Margin Undead. Don't make me his do it. Of... I'll do it again, all right? Joe, it sounds as if you're actually playing the guitar rather than just imitating one. But I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, living in the Midwest um, for law school in, in the mid-1990s, didn't have a television my first year. I went through an entire year of law school without a TV set. All I had was the internet. And this was dial-up internet on a 2400 baud modem. So it was text only. It wasn't the full internet as we know it today. And I had my books and the new adventures would come out. I would get a new adventure and it would be finished within about a minute and a half. Then I'd have to wait you know, 29 more days for the next one. But I was also on Rec Arts Doctor Who, and I had a pretty thriving Doctor Who fan-friend community even at that time. So there was a guy who lived up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was about 45 minutes away, and he would drive down every so often and show me a stack of videos. That's how I got to see the Air Zone Solution and the Devil of Winterborn and all the other Bill Bag stuff that was cycling around at the time. But one of my friends, it's probably the most thoughtful gift that I've ever received one of my friends made for me an off-air recording of Logopolis and Castrovalva, but just the music. Oh, wow. And there's occasional snippets of dialogue, you know, thrown at a scene start and stop. But it's one audio cassette double-sided, just the music from Logopolis, 
one audio cassette double-sided, just the music from Castro Valva. I played those things almost nightly, and I probably worn those tapes down, you know, to the point of being inaudible. But I actually had, we'll get to it in part two, the theme, the Legopolis funereal theme. I had it on as the background on my answering machine for about a week and a half. And then somebody called me and goes, Jason, why do you have funeral home music on your answering machine? <laughs> so I took it off. But the music is so beautiful and so haunting. Sure. I think large portions of the score are seared upon my consciousness. And very few days go by when I don't have some Patty Kingsland in my head. And you can't really say that about Mark Ayers. You can't really say that about Malcolm Clark. You can't really say that about most of the Doctor Who. There are some very good scores out there, but I think Patty Kingsland for me is numero uno. You know, you know I'm going to disagree with you, don't you? I think Mark Ayers is probably in my top three. I think his score for Great Show in the Galaxy, Curse of Fenric and Ghostlight are out of this world. I'm going to agree with you to a point because I just finished series 26 on my pilgrimage. And especially after Kef McCulloch and his Casio keyboard and his hand claps. Don't you Mark Ayers is, McCulloch. Don't you touch him, all right? Mark Ayers does gorgeous music, but it's background music and it fits the scene. I don't go around humming Ayers, uh, humming Ayers from Mark Ayers. Ha, ha, ha. That may be the worst pun ever told on Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. The Ayers of Ayers. But, I might be ripped for saying this because uh, Mark Rollins always rips at me for saying this about uh, Shakedown Return, Sontarans. But Mark Ayers does a fantastic score in that as well. He was scoring all of those sort of BBB, BBV videos in the 90s, you know. Uh, More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS as well, which has got lovely music. I will be watching More Than 30 Years in the TARDIS tomorrow. Tonight I'm doing a 20th, an anniversary special. We're recording this on November the 23rd. We picked this date on purpose. So tonight, for my spinoff podcast, I'm doing two random episodes of the classic series, and I don't know which ones yet. So that's tonight. Tomorrow night is going to be more than 30 years. And then Thursday, which for us is a holiday, will be Shakedown. So I have not seen Shakedown ever. I've only read the novelization, so I don't know the score. So I'll keep an ear out for the score, and I'll tag you in my Shakedown post in two days' time. I'll let you know what I think of it. You are in for a treat, man. Sophie Aldred and Caroline Vaughan in Shakedown Return of the Sontarans. It's the sort of acting you've never seen in your life. Now, this is a small bit for Tom Georgeson, who was previously in the Genesis of the Daleks. How do you like him in this, in his small scene as the detective sergeant? I think it's one of the great underrated performances because he's so sardonic and so cynical, and he's not taking anything Tom Baker is giving. And you rarely see a guest cast member who's able to hold his own against Todd Baker like that. Who is he in Genesis of the Daleks? It's a minor part. He is Garmin's number two. He's a scientist called Cavill, K-A-V-E-L-L. It's a much smaller part than he has here. I know who you mean. Um, well, I mean, he's good. I'm not sure if I'd, if I'd put him up that high. I don't think he's like like terrifically memorable, but he's very good. Admittedly, it's a small part, but I often quote him at work. I'm not paid to have opinions. <laughs> um, well, look, that is that is the end of episode one, would you believe? Um, and you are right, you know, we barely talked about the content at all, but like you said, this podcast has evolved, and uh, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Um, there's some of the ideas and some of the the performances that I'd like to touch upon in episode two, 
But I've got a feeling you've got some names you're going to throw out there to talk about more of the contributors. And I can't wait to hear what that is. 